In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. These are some hard-hitting passages this morning. Huh? We've got uh, people getting stoned to death and sawn in two in our reading from Hebrews. And in the gospel, Jesus seems like totally out of character when he says he came to bring fire and division. The truth is that over the next couple of weeks, our readings do not get any easier. And so when we come to hard passages like these, we want to fight every urge that we have to just dismiss them, even if they offend our modern sensibilities. We don't want to just dismiss them because we don't like them. We also want to fight any urge just to skim over them or ignore them because we don't know what to make of them. If Scripture is the Word of God, given to us by a loving and gracious God so that we may know Him both for His glory and for our own spiritual good, then when we come to difficult passages of Scripture like these, we come trusting that they hold something that we need to hear. We come trusting that they hold something that we need to hear. So the assigned readings over the next few weeks do seem to me to have a pretty consistent theme, and that is the theme of spiritual priorities. Spiritual priorities. Making sure that we put first things first. And so over the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. Spiritual priorities. Or as someone has said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The truth is, that's easier said than done, isn't it? That, that, I mean, there's just so many distractions in our lives. There's so many temptations all around us. So many complexities and layers that we have to deal with. I mean, sometimes the choices we have are just hard. You know, I mean, the, each option has pros and cons that we've got to weigh. Sometimes our will is, is just weak. And sometimes, maybe actually a lot of times, we, we just don't even think about it. We just act or react without considering what God wants for us or from us in any given situation. Well, whatever the case, it's just not always easy to keep the main thing the main thing. So over the next three weeks, I want us to consider whether we are orienting our lives through the lens of Jesus Christ. Are we orienting our lives through the lens of Jesus Christ? How we make decisions. How we treat other people. Those we love and those that we struggle to love. How we spend our time. Where we focus our energies. What is important to us. Is Jesus the lens through which we view our lives? Is Jesus just one spoke on the wheel or is he the axle around which uh, everything else turns? And I can promise you that I will be preaching to myself over these next few weeks. 
But I'm convinced that prioritizing Jesus in our lives actually makes everything else better. Not easier, but better. More joy, more peace, more forgiveness, more resilience, more clarity, more kindness. Which is not to say fewer bumps in the road. Right? Not the absence of stress or hard decisions. Not the absence of illness or heartbreak. But prioritizing Jesus brings peace and strength through life's inevitable trials and tribulations. Now, if by chance this happens to be your first time in church in a while, and the first words you hear from the lips of Jesus are, I came to bring fire and division and to pit fathers against sons and mothers against daughters, I would say that would be bad marketing. <laughs> Not very compelling, right? I mean, this is a really bad passage to rip out of a much larger context. Not a bad passage. Just a bad passage to rip out of its context. And Jesus is not saying that he has come to tear families apart. Let's just get that out of the way, right? This teaching that from our gospel passage comes in, in the context of a much larger teaching in which Jesus is exhorting his followers to be ready for his return. To be ready for his return. And in fact, much of this teaching is very joyful. Now, this is from the same passage that we had last week. When Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's the same teaching, same passage. Now, we didn't spend a lot of time on the gospel uh, passage last week in the sermon, so you might not remember that Jesus follows that declaration of God's gracious intent for us to give us the kingdom by describing the faithful response to such grace. Faithful response to such grace is faithful diligence. Staying ready for the master's return. So within the, the language of the parable, we might say, uh, to keep the fire going. To keep the stove hot. To keep the stoop swept. Treating any guests that come uh, exactly as the master would treat them. Being diligent rather than lackadaisical for days and even weeks if need be, trusting that the master who said he would return will return. Now, practically speaking, that is applying the parable to our lives, to be diligent rather than lackadaisical in our faith might mean worshiping weekly, reading scripture regularly, being generous, serving the poor, being mindful about treating people as Jesus would treat them, mindful about the example we set, careful about what we fill our minds and our bodies with, all because we love the Lord who died to save us. And we trust that if he said he's going to return, that he's going to return. He's going to return, and, and he will. And you know what, though? We've been waiting for a long time. A long time. And it's hard enough to just to stay motivated. We don't know when he's coming back. 
And you might be aware that such Christian diligence sometimes gets scoffed at. Maybe it's because they feel guilty that they're not being diligent. Maybe it's because they feel threatened about what might be expected of them. Maybe it's because they don't believe that there is a God. In my first church, uh, right out of seminary, there was a woman who um, had a friend who came to our church, and she saw the, the incredible difference that Jesus was making in the life of her friend. And so really, just out of curiosity, she came to church, and she was blown away. She expected finger-wagging. She got grace. She was moved, and, and so she came back, and she came back, and she eventually gave her life to Christ, and she began to get involved in the life of the church, and it infuriated her historically atheist family. Just infuriated them. And I remember that they spent all of Thanksgiving weekend mocking her new faith every chance they got. Not uh, playful poking fun, but cruel laughing jabs about her hypocrisy and her sudden loss of intelligence. And the truth is, I don't remember how it turned out. But I do remember that it was really painful for this newly Christian woman to be pulled between the Lord that she had discovered loved her and the husband that she had committed herself to, but who thought this new faith was ridiculous. And that is the sort of scenario that I think Jesus is imagining in our gospel passage when he says, for instance, that Five in one household will be divided. Two against three and three against two. And he also says it stresses him out. Because families were God's intent. Jesus did not come with the purpose of dividing, but he is both honest and distraught that one consequence, one consequence of his coming will sometimes be that there is division even within families. So what should we do when someone we love or like or work with or whatever it is, when someone we love doesn't love the Lord that we love and they don't love that we love the Lord. What should we do? Well, I think that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We prioritize Jesus. We don't compromise our faith, nor do we need to rub it in their faces. We don't weaponize our faith against them. We don't need to angrily defend ourselves or our rights or argue with them about why they're wrong. We just love them with the love that we have from Jesus, even and especially when it's really hard to love them. And I know that's easier said than done. But Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those who were nailing him to the cross. By holding fast to Jesus, and I would have, add by part of that is, is having a team of Christian friends around you to pray for you and to pray for the situation. By holding fast to Jesus, we can endure the stress and the pain of the situation and love them with the love of Jesus who died for their sins, even the sins they're committing against you. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for yours is the kingdom of heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We prioritize Jesus. Not to leave the other person, but to have the strength to love them and to give them the grace that we have received. Now, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Wouldn't it be great if I could say, well, and that's the way you turn their hearts, you know, and flip the switch or something. I don't know how it's going to turn out. And in fact, our passage from Hebrews suggests that, that sometimes it turns out great and sometimes it doesn't. The author of Hebrews is talking about stories from the Old Testament. He says that there are some who through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions. They, they quenched raging fires. They received their dead by resurrection and more. And let me tell you, each one of those situations involves stress and fear and pain. I mean, in order to shut the mouths of lions, you've got to face lions. <laughs> in order to receive your dead back from resurrection, you've got to have somebody die. But these, they clung to their faith, and in the end, it turned out great. And man, we love those stories. You may have a story like that. We love that. I hope you'll tell it to me. I love that. We love those stories. But the truth is, it didn't always work out like that. It didn't always turn out great in the end. And the author of Hebrews understands life in this world, and I'm, actually, I'm so grateful that he so honestly points out that for others, it didn't end well. At least not from an earthly perspective. They clung to their faith, even unto death. They were tortured, mocked, flogged, stoned to death, sawn into destitute. Why would I be grateful that he would include that? It's because, y'all, life is hard is hard. Maybe it's not persecution that's causing you to stress. Maybe it's that your body's breaking down. Maybe it's that you lost your job. Maybe it's that your family is estranged or your kid is in trouble. The author of Hebrews says, look at all those who held onto their faith through terrible circumstances. And I think we would do well to ask, why? Why would, why would they cling to their faith in a God they could not see in the face of such danger and hardship and pain? Why wouldn't they just chuck it and say, it's too much? I can't believe it. I could never believe in a God who would allow such suffering. I can't believe in a God who wouldn't turn that situation around. Why? It's because they found the greatness and the richness and the hope that they found in God far outweighed the suffering that they were enduring, even if it cost them their life. It didn't minimize the suffering, but gave them courage and strength because they prioritized their faith. They kept the main thing, the main thing. And you know, sometimes when I'm going through a season that just feels really hard, especially if I'm not doing a great job at keeping the main thing the main thing, which, which I don't always, 
It's tempting for me to think that I'm all alone in this. You know, nobody has ever dealt with what I'm dealing with right now. And I just love throwing myself a big old p- pity party. You probably don't do that, but I do that sometimes. No? Somebody? Anybody? And the author says, no. We got all these heroes of faith whose lives went through hell, but they held on to faith anyway. They kept the main thing the main thing. Their lives and their stories are an encouragement and an example to us. They're a great cloud of witnesses, he says, testifying that God is worth holding on to. And so whatever you're going through, God is greater. In fact, whatever you're going through, God suffered and died for you. Jesus, the author tells us, for the sake of the joy set before him. You know what that joy is? You. You're his joy. For your sake, he endured the cross, which is to say the agonizing pain, the cosmic pressure of all our sin. And he endured the shame. I mean, he hung naked on a cross before a mocking crowd. The only righteous man to die a criminal's death for you, for me. He would not go through that just to leave you when your life gets hard. He is with you. He's with you. So let's double down. Put aside the distractions, the sin that clings so closely. And whether we're in a good season or in a hard season, let's prioritize Jesus. Not because there's some heavenly finger wagging at us telling us we should. But because the creator and hope of the universe is available to us and sovereign over our lives. Let's fix our eyes upon Jesus, the lover of our souls, the giver of grace, the faithful companion, the perfecter of our faith in thought, word, and deed with those we love and struggle to love. Let us strive to keep the main thing, the main thing. Amen.